Section 26 of Baled Hay by Bill Nye. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Table Manners of Children Young children who have to wait till older people have eaten all there is in the house should not open the dining room door during the meal and ask the host if he is going to eat all day. It makes the company feel ill at ease and lays up wrath in the parent's heart. Children should not appear displeased with the regular courses at dinner and then fill up on pie. Eat the less expensive food first and then organize a picnic in the preserves afterward. Do not close out the last of your soup by taking the plate in your mouth and pouring the liquid down your childish neck. You might spill it on your bosom, and it enlarges and distorts the mouth unnecessarily. When asked what part of the fowl you prefer, do not say that you will take the part that goes over the fence last. This remark is very humorous, but the rising generation ought to originate some new table jokes that will be worthy of the age in which we live. Children should early learn to use the fork and how to handle it. This knowledge can be acquired by allowing them to pry up the carpet tacks with this instrument and other little exercises, such as the parent mind may suggest. The child should be taught at once not to wave his bread around over the table while in conversation, or to fill his mouth full of potatoes and then converse in a rich tone of voice with someone out in the yard. He might get his dinner down his trachea and cause his parents great anxiety. In picking up a plate or saucer filled with soup or with moist food, the child should be taught not to parboil his thumb in the contents of the dish and to avoid swallowing soup bones or other indigestible debris. Toothpicks are generally the last course, and children should not be permitted to pick their teeth and kick the table through the other exercises. While grace is being set at table, children should know that it is a breach of good breeding to smooch fruit cake just because their parents' heads are bowed down and their attention for the moment turned in another direction. Children ought not to be permitted to find fault with the dinner or fool with the cat while they are eating. Boys should, before going to the table, empty all the frogs and grasshoppers out of their pockets, or those insects might crawl out during the festivities and jump into the gravy. If a fly wades into your jelly up to his gambrels, do not mash him with your spoon before all the guests. His death is at all times depressing to those who are at dinner, and retards digestion. Take the fly out carefully with what naturally adheres to his person, and wipe him on the tablecloth. It will demonstrate your perfect command of yourself, and afford much amusement for the company. Do not stand up in your chair and try to spear a roll with your fork. It is not good manners to do so, and you might slip and bust your crust by so doing. Say thank you and much obliged and beg pardon whenever you can work in these remarks, as it throws people off their guard and gives you an opportunity to getting your work on the pastry and other bric-a-brac near you at the time. What it meant. When Billy Root was a little boy, he was of a philosophical and investigating turn of mind and wanted to know almost everything. He also desired to know it immediately. He could not wait for time to develop his intellect, but he crowded things and wore out the patience of his father, a learned savant, who was president of a livery stable in Chicago. 
One day, Billy ran across the grand hailing sign, which is generally represented as a tapeworm in the beak of the American eagle, on which is inscribed E Pluribus Unum. Billy, of course, asked his father what E Pluribus Unum meant. He wanted to gather in all the knowledge he could, so that when he came out west he could associate with some of our best men. "'I admire your strong appetite for knowledge, Billy,' said Mr. Root. "'You have a morbid craving for cold hunks of ancient history and cyclopedia that does my soul good, and I am glad, too, that you come to your father to get accurate data for your collection. That is right. Your father will always lay aside his work at any time and gorge your young mind with knowledge that will be as useful to you as a pharaoh cow.' E pluribus unum is an old Greek inscription that has been handed down from generation to generation, preserved in brine, and signifies that the tail goes with the hide. Voters in Utah This is the form of the oath required of voters in Utah under the new law. Territory of Utah, County of Salt Lake I blank being first duly sworn, or affirmed, depose and say that I am over twenty-one years of age, and have resided in the territory of Utah for six months, and in the precinct of blank one month immediately preceding the date thereof, and, if a male, am a native-born or naturalized, as the case may be, citizen of the United States and a taxpayer in this territory, or, if a female, I am native-born, or naturalized, or the widow or daughter, as the case may be, of a native-born or naturalized citizen of the United States. And I do further solemnly swear, or affirm, that I am not a bigamist or polygamist, that I am not a violator of the laws of the United States prohibiting bigamy or polygamy, that I do not live or cohabit with more than one woman in the marriage relation, nor does any relation exist between me and any woman which has been entered into or continued in violation of said laws of the United States, prohibiting bigamy or polygamy, and, if a woman, that I am not the wife of a polygamist, nor have I entered into any relation with any man in violation of the laws of the United States concerning polygamy or bigamy. Subscribed and sworn to before me this blank day of blank 1882. Registration Officer, Blank Precinct. It will be seen that at the next election some of the brethren and sisters in Zion will be disenfranchised unless they do some pretty tall swearing. This is a terrible state of affairs, and the whole civilized world will feel badly to know that some of our people are going to be left out in the cold, cold world with no voice and no vote just because they have been too zealous in the wedlock business. Matrimony is a glorious thing, but it can be overdone. A man can become a victim to the nuptial habit just the same as he can the opium habit. It then assumes entire control over him, and he has to be chained up or paralyzed with a club, or he would marry all creation. This law, therefore, is salutary in its operations. It is intended as a gentle check on those who have allowed themselves to become matrimony's maniacs. If we marry one of the daughters of a family, and are happy over it, is that any reason why we should marry the other daughters, and the old lady, and the colored cook? We think not. 
It is natural for man to acquire railroads and promissory notes and houses and lands, but he should not undertake to acquire a corner of the wife trade. Hence we say the law is just and must be permitted to take its course, even though it may disenfranchise many of the most prominent pelicans of the Mormon church. Matrimony in Utah has been allowed to run riot, as it were. The cruel and relentless hand of this hydra-headed monster has been laid upon the youngest and the fairest of the Mormon people. Matrimony has broken out there in a large family in some instances, and has not even spared the widowed and toothless mother. It generally seeks its prey among the youngest and fairest, but in Utah it has not spared even the old and the infirm. Like a cruel epidemic, it has at first raked in the blooming maidens of Mormondom, and at last spotted the lantern-jawed dregs of foreign female emigration. In one community, this great scourge entered and took all the women under forty-five, and then got into a block where there were nineteen old women who didn't average a tooth apiece, and swept them away like a cyclone. People who do not know anything of this great evil can have no knowledge of it. Those who have not investigated this question have certainly failed to look into it. We cannot find out about this question without ascertaining something of it. Incongruity our attention has been called recently to an illustration by Hopkins in a work called Forty Liars, in which a miner is represented as sliding down a mountain in a gold pan with a handle on it. Mr. Hopkins, no doubt, labors under a wrong impression of some kind relative to the gold pan. He seems to consider the gold pan and the frying pan as synonymous. In this he is wrong. The gold pan is a large low pan without a handle, and made of very different metal from a skillet or frying pan. The artist should study as far as possible to imitate nature and not make a fool of himself. Some artists consider it funny to represent a farmer milking a cow on the wrong side. They also show the same farmer later on, plowing with a plow that turns the furrow over to the left, another eccentricity of genius. There are many little things like this that the artist should look into more closely so as not to bust up the eternal fitness of things. We presume that Mr. Hopkins would represent a gang of miners working a placer with giant powder and washing out smelting ore in a tin dipper. It's pretty hard, though, for an artist who never saw a mining camp to sit and watch a New York beer tournament and draw pictures of life in a mining camp and people ought not to expect too much. End of section 26